0: Well, friends, happy Sunday. It's a joy to be in the house of the Lord with you as we are uh, walking through our summer series of, um, we've titled it Sacred Delight Conversations with the Almighty, as a um, a really an invitation to what prayer actually is for us. Uh, We stole that from Charles Spurgeon, who said that that's exactly what prayer is uh, that it's this holy privilege uh, that can sometimes feel like a chore. Um, but when our hearts are placed rightly before the Lord, uh, we understand it to be a delight. And so we are uh, praying, no pun intended, for uh, as your pastors and elders that this summer would be one in which you are awakened to that reality, uh, that we can uh, search our hearts, uh, ask God to search our hearts, uh, and bring us to a place where uh, prayer comes uh, a little more naturally than it does. Um, And I stand in front of that line because it is uh, it's weird. It's misunderstood. It's something, as Elliot said last week, and as the disciples showed us in the Gospels, it's actually something we must be taught to do. Um, and so expecting it to come naturally is uh, is almost counter uh, to what God intended. And so um, Elliot did an excellent job last week of uh, introducing the series, uh, all the ancillary opportunities for prayer that we have going on uh, this summer. And before we get to Uh, What Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, we are doing about three weeks of of setting that up. So, we're going to look at areas that make prayer both wonderful uh, and make prayer a little scary. Uh, And in today's passage, we'll see that uh, the battle that takes place within us uh, when we begin to pray uh, is one with which you you are likely familiar. Uh, We know that uh, there's this part of us that says, uh, because we hear it all the time as Christians, like just go and like pray about it, and you're like, sure. Except when I sit down to pray, I got a thousand different voices in my head um, that don't seem to be uh, what God is saying to me. Uh, and Scripture wants you to know uh, that's actually normal. And so we're going to be in First John uh, chapter three, and we're just going to be in three verses. I think I don't. I'm, I didn't get paid for math. Uh, from 19 to 22 is where we're going to be. And so uh, if you have a copy of the scriptures, we will uh, be there. It will also be on the screens. Uh, so let's give our attention this morning to the reading of God's holy word from 1 John chapter 3. Uh, starting in verse 19 and reading down. I'm actually going to read through verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. By this we shall know that we are the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Let's pray together. Father God, this morning, as we are longing uh, so desperately to hear from you, Uh, Lord, on the same side of that uh, is a heart uh, within us uh, that can uh, and does actually run counter uh, to what you have for us. Uh, And so, Jesus, would you change our hearts? Uh, Soften us, uh, take our heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh, as you've said in Scripture. Uh, Allow us uh, even just an hour uh, to sit and to hear from you. Uh, with no condemnation, Um, that that one hour would actually bleed into a lifetime of understanding that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Lord, this morning, uh, be with us, uh, we pray. It's in your name. Uh, Amen. So there'll be three things, actually two things we're going to see from this passage. I cut a point because I actually don't know how long this is going to be. The first is uh, an awakening, and the second point is an adoration. So awakening and adoration. So let's see what the Lord has for us here in First John chapter three. Uh, the passage I just read is uh, plucked really from a letter that John, who wrote the Gospel of John, uh, he wrote the three letters of John. He would also write the Book of Revelation. Um, it's plucked from a letter that John wrote to the churches uh, for them to know and remind them really exactly all that is theirs uh, and who they are and whose they are uh, as they stand in the face of great persecution. Um, As they stand uh, in the face of uh, a a hostile culture who did not like that they were there. Uh, John is telling God's people here, I want you to love your neighbors. I want you to love one another. Um, So how is this done, John tells us in this letter, by laying down our lives for one another based on the truth that Jesus has done the same thing for us. And the power to do such a thing, John wants us to know, especially here in these three verses, comes from time spent in prayer. And what John is telling us in verse 19 is that this is gonna be really hard. It tells us in verse 20, it's gonna be even harder. Because what you have going on as you approach prayer, as you have a heart inside of you that is actually condemning you as you were trying to go before God the Father. John wants us to know that prayer is not passive. He wants us to know that it's actually something we have to engage in, we have to lead our hearts in. It's this active offering up of our desires to God, asking God that they would be in accordance with his will, confessing our sins and acknowledging his mercy, which all sounds super simple, right? As we write it down and it sounds really easy to say, because that statement overlooks the massive truth that John is pointing out here. What he's saying is this Christians, your heart really doesn't want this. Your heart really doesn't want you to do this. Remember, John wants us to know, and what we say from the front a lot is that Scripture really isn't that complimentary to our hearts. Scripture is not that complimentary to our own souls. Now we have woven a little bit of this Disney magic sort of into our spiritual life to say things like, well, I'm just gonna follow my heart or I want to, I, I, I kind of know in my heart that something feels right and then we can do it. But scripture actually never says that. Scripture would say the opposite of that it would actually warn against that. Because um, as we see in the book of Jeremiah, we hear from Jeremiah the prophet that the heart is deceitful above all things. We just finished a Genesis series where when God is, uh, is commissioning Noah to build the ark, he's gonna destroy the world because he says the thoughts of the heart are only evil all the time. And so John is saying all that is still true. Your hearts are never neutral. Our hearts are hostile to the things of God. And so we sit, when we sit down to engage in prayer, our hearts really go on the offensive. Shame and guilt start to bubble up almost immediately, right? We handed out these bookmark things, <laughs> these things, these bookmarks that people worked really hard on. We handed those out last week, right? We did a QR code that you could, we could text you a prayer, uh, a psalm to pray every day. The second I got that text message, I was like, well, I already, I already screwed that up. And then I didn't do it. Because that's where our hearts almost immediately go, especially when it comes to prayer, because we we have this feeling and we've been taught this kind of weird thing that if you're bad at prayer, God's mad at you. And so we think that all the time. I think it all the time. And John is saying, you're all bad at prayer because your hearts are condemning you when you sit down and you want to sit before the Father and you're like, all right, God, here it is. I got my coffee, got my Bible open. Talk to me. And then nothing happens. Or your kids start screaming. Or you're like, I need to answer a couple work emails. Or the playoffs are on. We sit there and we think, I'm supposed to commune with this God who loves me more than anything in the world. Why is this so hard? It's because our hearts are condemning us the second we sit down. Your heart's saying, hey, remember, remember what you did. Is God really gonna listen to you? Are you really gonna ask forgiveness for that again? Why don't you go work on that and then come back to Jesus? What makes you think you can come in here after all that you've done? Pastor and commentator John Stott says of this passage uh, that we're on trial. It's as if we're in a courtroom and our hearts are playing the part of the prosecutor. And then we have God as the judge. And then we try to be our own defendant. So we're defending ourselves against ourselves to God and our hearts are winning because most of the time y'all, Our hearts are right. And so John is saying what we do here when we approach God in prayer, the first thing we have to do is have our hearts be put at ease. Because what happens when we sit down to pray and our hearts begin to condemn us is this. We've been awakened, as my friend George says, to the mortal wound that came at the fall of man. The mortal wound that came that said, Remember the first time your parents did this and then they went and hid and they covered themselves and they were so ashamed? You've been awakened, you've seen too much. You've been awakened to this mortal wound that this world isn't as it's supposed to be. That prayer and the spiritual life was intended to be very easy and normal, as easy and normal as breathing. And then sin enters the world and then it all goes askew. We've been awakened to the mortal wound that the world is a scary place, and we have to protect ourselves because no one's gonna look out for us. In my neighborhood two days ago, there was a dude who kind of dressed like a Teletubby, if you remember those, um, wearing a tactical vest and carrying a long rifle, just walking up and down the street. I'm in a meeting and my wife texts me, and my neighbor Brooks calls me, and he's like, Hey, there's a dude walking around the street. And I'm like, Oh boy, the world's not supposed to be. We're not supposed to be scared like that. Right? A school gets shot up at the end of March. It's not supposed to happen. Then our hearts, when we go to God, the one that we want to comfort us, our hearts are like, No, 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 no. You can do this yourself. The abusive parent, the absent spouse, all of these waken us to the truth of the universe that things aren't as they should be. So when we go into our prayer closets to commune with God with this mystic sweet communion that we sing about, instead what seems to take place is an experiment of foolishness. Because you're trying. your heart is going to God, prosecuting you, and you're trying to defend yourself. Don't come in here. Don't come in here thinking you can do that. Daryl, I know who you really are. And so prayer becomes so difficult for us. Scripture says, don't be surprised when your heart tricks you. This is all of Paul's letters. Don't be surprised when your sin deceives you, just like he said that it would. So that's fun. That's fun. This thing that's like the lifeblood of our relationship is going to be very difficult. Then, how in the world do we cultivate this prayer life if everything is stacked against us? We look back to what John says in the same verse. As our hearts are awakened, as we've been awakened to this mortal wound, we're also awakened to this God is always lurking. God is always at work. God is always present. He's always hanging out beneath the surface. John says, your hearts will condemn you, but God is greater than your heart and God knows everything. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that your heart knows everything. This is, this is wildly liberating that God knows us better than we know ourselves and in a city and in a time that is obsessed with self-knowledge. Know everything about yourself, know every personality test, know every root of every sin, of every way that you respond to anything in the world. Know all of that and then you'll be safe. And God is saying, you'll never know it all, but I do. God knows me better than we know ourselves. Knowledge can make us feel safe. Knowledge lets us on the inside. We're not surprised. We root out the reasons why I do what I do so I don't have to worry about it. We suit up on a quest to find out everything instead of surrendering ourselves to the one who already knows everything. And get this, he knows everything and he doesn't condemn you. Your hearts condemn you. The world condemns you, Satan's condemning you, but God is coming in and saying, I know it all, and I don't condemn you. Remember what Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery back in John chapter eight, when these nerds bring her to Jesus to say that she was caught in this extramarital affair. And Moses says, Jesus, we get to like pelt her with rocks and kill her for what she did. What do you say that we do, Jesus? And Jesus says, whichever one of you has a clear record, go ahead and throw the first stone, and they all left. And Jesus tells her, none of these men condemn you, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. We all know John 3.16, and we know that John 3.17 says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me would be saved. Meaning no one brings a charge against God's elect, not even God himself. Y'all, this is wildly liberating. That no one brings a charge against God's elect, not even God himself. That if you're hidden in him, John tells us here, awaken yourself to two realities that are true at the same time. Your heart's going to condemn you, but God is greater than your heart. Not just the reality that our hearts will condemn you, but that the greater reality that is true at the same time is that God is greater than Than your hearts, that in this courtroom where the heart is the persecutor, you are not your own defendant. You're not your own lawyer. That Jesus is, not yourself. You can't do that job. You can't do that job, but when you do, you're going to lose. You're going to lose every single time. (laughs) Right? There's only one man who's undefeated against sin, it's Jesus. So Jesus is the one who stands in our place and says, Even if everything that your heart says about you is true, it probably is. Even if it's true, even because it's true, Jesus says, I've paid for it and I've covered it. And in in my precious blood that was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, I have placed their sins as far as the east is from the west. I have tossed them in the bottom of the sea. I've chucked them into outer space. Whatever metaphor helps you, they can't be found. Your heart can't find them. And in God's gracious judgment of Christ's work on our behalf, God says, you are set free. And the sin and the, you were set free and the sin and the guilt and the power and the penalty of both of those things are going to be cast into hell. And so we can approach Jesus knowing that every jot and every tittle of the law has been covered for you when he imputes his righteousness, his righteousness to us, his perfect record of living a life that we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, all that stuff you learned in youth group, when all that stuff is true, that's what Jesus gives to you. And in turn, he takes from us our sin and our shame. The song says, guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless lamb of God was he, full atonement can it be, hallelujah, what a Savior. This is what is awakened in us when we see God for who he truly is. And when we hear his voice, instead of the voice of our heart that seeks to condemn us, this first, this first battle that we walk into when we go to pray is training ourselves to hear the right, voice, the right voice. That we train ourselves to hear God's voice that says, I don't condemn you, instead of the voice of our hearts that says, you don't have any business being here that we remember our justification before the Lord, that if we are found in him and awaken ourselves to what is true, that our enoughness comes from Jesus Christ and what he has done and not what we can do. That we can, that we can no longer look at what we are to do to make ourselves right before God and just live in the reality that we already are. And then we can look to prayer and move forward in it. That this first hurdle of listening to what God says about us places our hearts at rest. That our hearts shut up. And then God starts to speak. And then we can approach him and we can adore him for what he has done, which brings us to our last point. If we look at verses 21 and 22 Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. In verse 21, if our hearts does not condemn us, it's translated really there kind of literally and probably better translated to say, when our hearts are at rest, we have confidence in God. If our hearts are put at rest before him, when the prosecution rests, we have confidence before God, confidence that only comes from being a beloved child of God. And this isn't like an alpha male, frat boy confidence. This is resting. It's a resting and a trusting confidence that the one upon the throne, the one that says, I welcome you here. He's the one who tells me what I am. And he's the one who has made promises. Promises like he will never leave me or forsake me, even if my girlfriend breaks up with me. He's the one who will never forsake us, even when their friends turn their backs on us. That when I ask for a fish, he won't give me a serpent. That when I ask for bread, he won't give me a stone. When I ask for wisdom, he isn't hiding some whack-a-mole mallet behind his back. He's not gonna bring up your sin to you. He has forgotten it. And he doesn't have amnesia, right? God didn't smack his head on the ground or something. When he says that he's forgotten, what he's saying is I'm choosing not to remember it because my son Jesus has paid for that. Tim Keller, who we, who we lost last week, actually, uh, and is now with the Lord, says that the only person who dares wake a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a king's child. And we have that kind of access. That when we approach God boldly, when we approach him confidently, we're approaching him as our father. Not as some disconnected king, but as a father in the way that a father should have been. Because for some of us, the idea of a father like that is so foreign. But we know that our hearts long for one. And Jesus says, that's what you have. And God, that we live and move and have our being under this God who loves us and gave himself up for us and now says, ask for what you want and keep my commandments. And that when we are abiding in him, as we were told in John 15, that we are so connected to him that we're drawing our very nutrients from the vine of Christ, that what we ask for, when it's in accordance with his will, is given to us. Now God delights in giving good gifts to his children and his children delight in keeping his commandments. What seems like this backwards idea unless you really love someone. It seems like a backwards idea that you have to like keep commandments unless you really love someone. And then obedience moves from from a duty to a choice. As hymn writer William Cooper wrote, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Adoration is the fuel for obedient, obedience. It's not white knuckle discipline. That when we adore God for who he is, for allowing us to approach him for, out of what he has done for us, that when we adore him, we'll keep his commandments. Because we love him, we'll do what he asks of us. This is what fuels Christian obedience, not white knuckle discipline. There's a popular mantra that kind of floats around that discipline is greater than motivation. Like that might work in the weight room. That doesn't work in Christianity. It doesn't work in spirituality. The motivation to be disciplined, the motivation to adhere to the commandments of God only comes when we see that Christ has fulfilled the law for us, that we love because he first loved us, that any inkling to pursue righteousness comes from him because our hearts are bent away from him. Remember, this is what John said earlier, that our hearts are condemning us. Our hearts wanna serve our own interests unless you're given a new heart. Unless the heart of stone is replaced by the heart of flesh that longs to be in sync with the one who created it, adoration is the first tactical step in the battle of prayer because adoration fuels everything else in our lives. The Bible says this, that you are what you worship. Adoration is worship, right? The thing that you adore is the thing that you really love and you are what you love. And that if, as the Westminster Confession of Faith tells us, that if the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, that means that we are to love God above all else. Because of what He's done. Jesus, Scripture, Paul, church, they call this sanctification. Sanctification that we are made to look more like Jesus and we're made to behave the way in which Jesus did and love the things that Jesus loved and what Jesus loved above all else was doing the will of his Father. Not his will, as you said, but the will of one who sent him. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him forever by keeping his commandments. He tells us, keep my commandments and receive whatever you ask. If we look to God and his love to bear the weight of who we are, instead of our relationships, instead of everyone else in our lives, we'll begin to change and we'll see that God has done a great thing for us. And then John tells us what this commandment is, in case you're confused. He tells us this, keep his commandments and do what pleases him, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. John tells us, believe in Jesus. Believe in who he says he is. Believe in him crucified. Believe in him risen from the dead. Believe in him who sits even now at the right hand of God, the father almighty, who intercedes for you, who has said, I will leave heaven and come to earth and buy you back. I will come and protect you from all the devil's schemes. I will come and make it to where we will live together for eternity. Believe in his work accomplished by him on your behalf. Believe that he truly is who he says he is. Place your trust in him and then move in prayer toward those around you. That we remember Jesus for who he says he is, that we believe on his name and then we love one another. That's the church, that's prayer that's an invitation let's pray together. Jesus Christ, we are uh, undone by such um, such a lofty task that prayer, uh, as hard as it can be doesn't always have to be that way that we are forever in a battle against our hearts and a battle against our own will versus the will that you might have for us. Uh, Jesus, forgive us for that. Forgive us for that as you've always said that you will. Remind us um, that you have greater things for us. Uh, Lord, soften our hearts, melt our hearts, turn our hearts to you. Lord, for those who are here and don't know you, would you call them to yourselves? Allow those among us to place their trust in you. And Jesus, I ask that you would allow me to do the same. In your name I do pray, amen.